Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is Tuesday. Feels like a Monday. Tuesday, the 7th of September, 2021. Uh, President Biden is going to survey flood damage today in New York and New Jersey. That will probably top much of the news um, as he makes his way through those communities ravaged by floodwaters where dozens of Americans lost their lives. The Taliban has completed its takeover of the nation of Afghanistan and has already begun using force to break up peaceful protests, in particular one in support of women's rights in Kabul. Um, the federal pandemic unemployment benefits in the United States expired yesterday. And so you're going um, to you're going to hear many, many testimonies about the reliance that people had come to. Um, well, people had come to rely on that additional $300 a week in lieu of getting a job. That That's actually, you're going to hear that fairly frequently, um, how they had become reliant on that additional money instead of actually pursuing work in the larger economy. So let's just encourage that. There are lots of jobs available. Encourage people who are um, able to do so to get a job. Um, and there is a uh, there's a story, and we'll cover it more fully in the coming days, the president of the Human Rights Campaign, which is an LGBTQ advocacy group, uh, the president of that organization was Alfonso David. Uh, he has now been fired as the president of the Human Rights Campaign over a report that he advised then Governor Andrew Cuomo on how to handle the sexual assault claims being made against him by numerous women. Uh, El Salvador has now become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as its legal tender. Maybe we will uh, have an opportunity to talk to one of our um, economic folks about that in the coming days. But let me offer this headline. It's a very, very tragic headline out of Florida, but you're going to hear about it later today if you have not already. Uh, a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, a sharpshooter who served in both um, Iraq and Afghanistan, his name is Brian Riley. He now stands accused of, credibly accused, by the way. I mean, he was in, in the House in a standoff against authorities for hours. Um, so... Credibly accused uh, Brian Riley of killing a family in Lakeland, Florida. He had earlier claimed uh, to having been sent by God to prevent a suicide, and his girlfriend has been telling authorities that Riley claimed to speak directly with God. This was going to lead to a conversation about mental illness. It's going to lead to a conversation about PTSD. It's going to lead to a conversation about the reality that. The hell of war is not left in the past nor overseas on foreign fields. Um, the hell of war comes home. And if you missed our conversation with Chaplain Steve West on the 28th of July about his book, The Bronze Scar, Understanding How PTSD Feels, I'd encourage you to check that out. This is also um, Suicide Prevention Week and Suicide Awareness Month here in the United States. And so later in the program today, we're going to talk with Dr. Matthew Sleeth about Hope Always, not only his book, but um, the resources available 
for the prevention of suicide um, among Christians. First up today, we're going to talk with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University about uh, the question that we face, uh, this critical moral moment that we face as a nation over, yes, a one law in the state of Texas, but more broadly, the war over the constitutionality and the public policy of laws related to abortion. I mean, ultimately, we are going to have to answer the fundamental question. And that fundamental question or how we answer that question is going to determine not only our public policy and our politics, but the moral principles that we live by. And I think serve as a marker for our individual relationship with God. I mean, either human life is God-given, God-created, God-blessed, or it is not, and it is something over which we are sovereign. So it's going to ultimately come down to God's authority or our autonomy. What is human life and when does it begin? Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joins us next to unpack the unfolding narrative of the Texas heartbeat law. That's up next here on Morning with Carmen. Joining us this morning, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Mark, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. How are you doing today? I am well. I am well. Thank you. Uh, it is uh, I, fall has arrived. Like that first day that you walk out the door and you say, whew, all right, maybe these thin cotton pants were not enough, right? Like it's like someday that day arrives, that day has arrived where I live. Uh, I look forward to that day every year. It's one of my favorite days of the year. Yes, um, my producer, Paul Perot, believes that today, being the day after uh, Labor Day, is actually the launch of the pumpkin spice season. Yes, yes, very much. Mm-hmm. Pumpkin spice mm-hmm. opener today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I did have a little pumpkin spice over the weekend, though, so my apologies. But no, no, I'm it's okay. It's okay. You admitted that you over can... broadcast radio, dude? I, I know. Did. It's okay. Now I'm the sorry. cops are going to okay. get you. It's okay. I like me some pumpkin spice. Okay. Um, So let's talk about the Texas heartbeat law. I'm going to describe it this morning as a moving target. So maybe you could tell us where we are today in terms of the battle in the courts and maybe what some of the arguments are against the implementation and enforcement of this particular law. Yeah, I think a moving target is probably a good description of this. Um, as listeners probably remember, I mean, last week the Supreme Court voted to not to grant an injunction, uh, which would have prevented the law from going into effect. Uh, but Texas courts have intervened and, and given a broad injunction, from what I understand, uh, limiting the law. But what this really means for the courts, they're deciding uh, the degree to which this, this law can go into effect before courts have to rule on it and determine uh, whether it's legal. Um, injunctions are a pretty common tool that courts use sometimes to prevent a law from going into effect, primarily so people don't get damaged uh, unnecessarily, uh, because sometimes the damages are so significant that the uh, courts just don't want to see people go through that process before they actually review the case. So uh, it is a bit of a moving target. Um, and I don't know how you've consumed information about it and how you've responded to that kind of information, but. Uh, Everything I see, there are a lot of people who are just confused about the law, uh, what it does, um, what it means for Roe versus Wade, how effective it is, is it's the kind of law that we want to get behind, Uh, lots of confusion. And I think some of that just stems from the nature of the law itself. Well, and then we have um, news out today that private companies like Lyft and 
Uber are yeah. either going to transport women um, to these appointments, to these abortion clinics and for these appointments um, for free and, and or pay uh, whatever might uh, might come in, in the way of uh, penalties to drivers who who participate in, in ferrying women to these appointments. I think lost in much of the conversation, particularly when I hear it presented from the Christian you know, side of the of the argument, much of what is lost is a conversation you know, about the women who are who are dealing in their lives with whatever constellation of challenges they're dealing with. that leads them to the point that they believe their life would be better if this other life was terminated. And I think that for Christians, um, you know, not only do we advocate for these this pro-life legislation and, and, and a heartbeat bill, I mean, once you hear a human heartbeat, it is really hard to deny that there is a human life. And so right. I understand, you know, the, the conversation about when life begins and, and how we want to help the nation into a conversation about that when Roe v. Wade said it at a very, very arbitrary, you know, two trimesters, right, third trimester. Right. Like, right, that's just yep. totally arbitrary. So that's just a made-up point. Um, that that the court established in and of itself. Um, I think that part of the conversation for Christians that I would like to press forward is, you know, how do we have pro-life for whole life? Like, how do we really engage in the pro-life conversation that's not just about keeping people from aborting their children, but having them, loving them, raising them? You know, like, how, how do we how do we get into all of that? Because abortion is often... Um, you know, women arrive at that horrific decision because they don't see another way. They don't see a way to to raise a child, and so I think that's a that's a conversation we have to be engaged in as well. I think I think you're exactly right, uh, and the reason that uh, it's so difficult is because it uh, pushes us in some directions that we really don't prefer to go. Um, you know, abortion. You know, back forty years ago, for sure. Uh, 50 years ago, no, no doubt that um, abortion was really not a partisan issue. Uh, there were a lot of pro-life Democrats. There were pro-choice Republicans, and uh, the parties had some variety and diversity on it. And so there are different opinions. Um, people didn't get locked into very strict partisan ideological camps. But now abortion really has broken into that this very strong, strict ideological partisan divide. And what that means. Uh, is when you talk about solutions, potentially, the solutions have to also fit into that divide for people to feel comfortable with them. So uh, you're probably familiar, but like Mitt Romney has suggested that we uh, give women and expectant parents uh, financial assistance. You know, if, if they're going to uh, carry the child to term uh, and deliver, then we sh- the government should be providing them some sense of financial assistance so that uh, finances at least aren't part of that calculation. You know, you said women... Uh, surely think of themselves sometimes just unable, you know, don't have the resources, can't care for the child. Uh, maybe some direct government funding would be a way to offset uh, that concern. Of course, but Romney's idea uh, doesn't sit well with people who just say, well, you know, I'm conservative. I'm not, I don't believe in spending money uh, like that. That sounds more like a handout or maybe universalized health care, and they're just going to simply be against it. Um, Now, again, that doesn't mean Romney's idea is the only one, but it's just an example of how uh, a creative approach is going to run up against all these other obstacles that people are going to put in its path because it just doesn't fit neatly into the categories that we typically use. Um, But if you want to be pro-life and you want to 
succeed on this issue, I think we're going to have to be creative and show some flexibility. Um, and, and I'm not sure right now we're all that interested in doing it, but I think these kinds of discussions and maybe the Texas law will force us to that point. I think having a conversation here in the United States that's similar to the one that we uh, have globally about the welfare of women and children. Um, So I'm thinking there about like the thousand days conversation, the thousand days from conception to a child's second birthday being the period of time during which a mother and her child really, you know, need a substantial level of of support from family, from community and yeah, from from government. We do it around the world. We actually I mean, I don't know if people listening know that, but we do this around the world. We support women who are pregnant, um, you know, up to the second birthday of their child. Right. So that's the thousand days. Maybe we should start thinking about that, you know, applying what we do around the world here in the United States as well. Might be an interesting way to have the conversation. All right, uh, Mark, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court, particularly with Justice Breyer. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, Let's talk about Justin. Well, let's talk about the Supreme Court. Let's talk about Justice uh, Breyer and why so many people are talking about him today. Uh, Justice Breyer has been the subject of a lot of discussion uh, really ever since President Biden came into office. Uh, progressives throughout the country are uh, sometimes gently and sometimes not so gently uh, suggesting that uh, he should retire. And uh, he's in the middle of a book tour right now. He's getting ready to publish a book and he's doing a lot of interviews. And like it or not, this issue continues to come up around these interviews. Uh, and you know, you can understand why. I mean, progressives really don't want to see Breyer go down the same path that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. Uh, She died during President Trump's term, of course. Uh, He replaced her uh, with a conservative justice, Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, they don't want Breyer to hang on and maybe Biden loses the White House in 2024 and then a Republican replaces him at that point. And so uh, I can understand where they're coming from, but this is this is not going to go away. And you have to feel for Justice Breyer. Right. I mean, it's got to be kind of weird to have people just sort of pressing you off uh, into the sunset, whether you want to go or not. So I think that's, um, you know, that's one way to bring the conversation home for each and every person listening right now. You know, at what point do people view us as, well, obsolete? Like we'd, we'd be, <laughs> we'd all be better off if you went and did something else or nothing at all and, and sort of got out of the way for the next generation to bring its ideas uh, to the fore. Why historically have we um, viewed appointments to the Supreme Court as, you know, as life appointments? And and yeah. what is the conversation? Because there's now this, you know, group of people who's openly discussing the future of the court. And part of what they're talking about is term limits. Yeah, and it is a discussion right now. I mean, the, the Constitution sets out this this um, phrase for the justices. It says they serve in their positions upon good behavior, which, as you said, just practically speaking, means a lifetime appointment unless you do something that's worthy of impeachment or something else. And justices have an open-ended approach then, an open-ended term to office. The Constitution, I think, and those who wrote it, uh, had a couple of motivations for that. One was that uh, the law uh, is a very difficult, complicated body of knowledge to learn. And if you bring people in and they only serve for four years or six years, uh, or maybe even eight or ten years, 
uh, then by the time they're really starting to understand all the nuances of everything they have to be responsible for, uh, they would be out the door and someone else would be replacing them. And so the term of office is good for them to develop as much expertise as they can. Uh, but probably the most uh, theoretical reason for it was to insulate the justices from political pressure. So once they have a lifetime appointment, they're not always looking over their shoulder, worrying about uh, the next election or the next appointment or the next review by Congress or the Senate or whoever might be reviewing them or deciding whether they move forward. Uh, in theory, that should give them the freedom to be independent and to make decisions that they think are best, uh, regardless of political pressure. And I think that's, I honestly think that's a very good design. Uh, you could argue that maybe justices shouldn't be serving until they're 80 or 85 years old. Um, but having a long term or a lifetime appointment, I think it does give them some flexibility and the freedom that they need to make hard decisions, uh, whether those decisions are popular or not. Uh, unfortunately, that runs up against some of what we want out of the court. We want the court to do what we want it to do. We want it to do it right now. And uh, sometimes we want to change the court because it doesn't act the way that we want it to. Just as a point of reference, we have a president of the United States who is 78. We right. have uh, members of Congress. Dianne Feinstein is 87. Chuck Grassley is 87. Richard Shelby is 86. So is Jim. Uh, is it Inhofe in yep. from yep. Uh, Oklahoma? Uh, Patrick Leahy is 80. We got a bunch of people in their 70s. Bernie Sanders is 79. Mitch McConnell, 78. Uh, Jim Rich, 77. Ben Cardin, 77. Angus King, 76. I mean, on and on and on, right? Yep. So um, uh, we got uh, – we have to have maybe a more robust conversation than just, hey, we got one by a guy on the Supreme Court who we'd like to see retire and we'd like there to be an age limit to all of this. I mean, there is a – there is an age limit on the other end. Should there be an age limit on this end? I mean, you can't run for Congress until you're a certain age. You can't run to be the president until you're a certain age. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, in favor of it, and primarily because it's difficult to know when someone really could be whatever it means to be too old. Uh, mm -hmm. How do we know when they can't fulfill their office? I mean, you Moses you I, would have but, never gotten to serve. That's right. And so, I mean, I've, I've interacted with people who are 75, 80 years old. I'd say, hey, yeah, they'd be great in whatever they do. And other people, I'd say, well, you know, they're probably starting to slow down. It may be really difficult to do. I think it's tough to put a cap on it uh, for that reason. If you do, it's got to be one number and it's probably got to be across the board uh, for all federal offices, um, which may not be uh, the end of the world. Uh, but it would it would be a fight because, as you said, members of Congress would resist it. Uh, because right now, uh, an awful lot of older members of Congress uh, would not be in favor. All right. If my mom is listening today, I just want to be want to be clear. I did not suggest that there be an upper age limit. Um, I I just posed the, the the general question in the uh, in the conversations of the day. Mm -hmm. Just you know, I'm hedging myself on the other side of the show. Whew. All right. That's a good move. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there's so much you and I could talk about today. Um, what else has your attention as you're surveying the headline news or things you're reading that we ought to be reading as well? I mean, Afghanistan continues to be interesting. Um, David Brooks's column on Afghanistan over the weekend was really interesting, I think, about the shriveling of theocracy in that region of the world. And the question he was really asking was, was it worth it? What we did, was it worth it? And he's kind of pushing back and saying, you know, maybe it was worth it. His attitudes seem to be shifting throughout the Middle East. Um, I think that's worth discussing. 
And uh, the narrative about Afghanistan unfolding over the next several years, maybe even several decades, is going to be really fascinating to watch as it uh, as we argue about it moving forward. As always, um, so helpful to talk with you, get a frame around what's happening here in the United States and around the world. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find him on Twitter. Mark, thank you so much. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. Thanks to you and all your listeners. Uh, We'll see you all soon. That sounds great. All right. We'll be right back. So this is Suicide Prevention, Suicide Awareness Month and Suicide Prevention Week. And so to bring the issue into view and to talk about what we as Christians can do in the face of the epidemic of suicide here in the United States, we're going to bring back Dr. Matthew Sleeth. We have talked with him on several occasions. Um, He's got an excellent book on the topic. Uh, The book is Hope Always. But let me say this, if you are contemplating taking your own life, please hear me. You are loved. You are seen. Your life matters. There is hope. There is always hope. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Dr. Sleeth will be with us when we return. Hope always. You're an adult. Most likely, you're a responsible one. You take in information, process the situation, and make mature decisions, right? Well, that's exactly what your teen will do one day, too. Hi, I'm Mark Grigston with Parenting Today's Teens. A 14-year-old won't behave like an adult yet because he isn't one. And I've known plenty of moms and dads who keep that 14-year-old from making any decisions just because he can't make adult ones quite yet. Don't sabotage your teen's growth. The only path from irresponsible teen to responsible adult is on the road of trial and error. Allow your teen to make choices. Then be prepared that he'll make some poor ones. Those little failures will actually add up over time and yield success as an adult. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Joining us again today, Dr. Matthew Sleeth. He is a former emergency room physician. He was the chief of the hospital medical staff. He now uh, teaches and preaches and writes about faith and health. He has joined us on a number of occasions. We have talked with him about reforesting faith. We have talked with him about his efforts at Blessed Earth, which you can find at blessedearth.org. Today, he joins us again to talk about his new book, Hope Always, how to be a force for life in a culture of suicide. It released in May. We talked with him in May, but he's back today because this is Suicide Prevention Week and Suicide Awareness Month. Matthew, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Oh, it's great to be back with you. How are you this morning? Well, I am I am well. I am guessing that uh, it is the first day that feels like fall where you are in Lexington, Kentucky, as it is where I am. Yes, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. All right, Um Suicide. Suicide is a major public health concern here in the United States. 
47,500 people die by suicide each year in the United States, and it's the 10th leading cause of death overall. It's complicated, it's tragic, it's preventable, and there is always hope. Talk with us about um, the reality of suicide in America. Well, the the reality is that over the last uh, 20 plus years, it's gotten worse every year by about 2%, and I don't see it uh, changing. I think it will continue to get worse. And um, the the fact is that the church has been very, very quiet. And um, I think that's a, a tragedy because we have the good news. We have a, a message of hope. Um, and, and that's not to discount medical intervention or anything like that. But Christians are a committed Christian is about four to six times less likely to commit suicide than an atheist. And there are reasons behind that. And I, I, my urging is that that people educate themselves some and that they begin to reach out to those that are depressed and struggling and you can make a difference you can you can save their lives and and what a what a wonderful thing to do with your own life right absolutely so let's um let's talk about some of that when you say that christians are less likely to commit suicide than atheists um christians are also not immune um absolutely. from this no. and and we recognize that as well the book addresses that um and I think that when, you know, when we're talking about these kinds of numbers and the concentric circles or, or waves of people affected by the suicide of an individual, um, there's lots of people listening right now who have someone in their family or close in their circle or in their church who has taken their own life. So Matthew and I know as we're addressing this topic that it is personal and it is near. Um, and so we want we want you to hear us say that and um, and recognize that we know that you're listening right now, and and you may be listening in real desperation. So, Matthew, talk to that person right now, um, because I think that is a demonstration to the rest of us on you know how we address a person who we know is really suffering in this way. Yes, and, and first of all, the thing that I would say is that even though you may feel marginalized and and even marginalized in the church. Jesus made absolutely no distinction uh, between mental and physical illness. He came to heal both. And as a matter of fact, that's, that's, that's not completely accurate. I didn't, didn't make a distinction. In the example of him going to the uh, demoniac and uh, throwing those, those demons out of that uh, poor soul— um, and healing him, uh, Jesus went out of his way uh, to go to a non-kosher pig farm <laughs> to do it. And so we have the example of our Lord who reached out and touched and healed these people. And um, and, and so um, to that person who's struggling, um, first of all, the Lord loves you, and he, and he loves you no less because you're struggling with mental illness versus cancer or diabetes or or, or anything like that. We um, um, we we are in a fallen state, and we have to deal with disease. But it doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't love you, and it doesn't mean that you don't have a place in the church. There are so many people like you who've struggled with depression and been uh, great contributors to the church, whether um, that's uh, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, suffered with depression most of his life, Mother Teresa, Henry Nowen, C.S. Lewis, um, so many heroes of the faith uh, are 
we're in the same position that you are. And so I would urge you to um, uh, uh, to to hope and to know that the Lord is there with you, um, but that suicide is wrong. Jesus didn't die so that you would take your life. He died so that you would live. And that would be my message. So um, I'm aware that we have uh, a friend of the show, a person who listens on a regular basis, um, who last week texted me, what do I do if I've lost all hope, all desire, and even the desire to continue living? Now, I engaged directly with this individual, and um, so I I offered what I hope were some some good and helpful resources and touch points and points of hope. But every single one of us um, has somebody in our life who we know is walking right on this edge. So talk with us about what we do. Well, I think we, we do what you did. We, we respond, we get back to that person. And if necessary, we reach out ourselves. Um, I think it's even fair to ask somebody um, if if there's somebody that we know, um, not a you know not a stranger, but a loved one or a family member, and if we believe um, that they're struggling with that, it's okay to ask. Are you have you thought about harming yourself? And um, most people are hesitant to open that conversation, thinking that they'll put the thought in someone's mind. But in fact, uh, you're. Uh, study after study has shown that what you're doing is throwing them a lifeline, not putting any thoughts in their mind. So to open that uh, communication, um, one thing I think that everybody should have in their phone if they're struggling with this or if they've got a friend is the number of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which I'm going to give if that's okay, which Absolutely. is one 800 273 talk or 1 800 273 8255. Just put it in your phone, even if you don't need it or you're not, this isn't even on your radar. Put it in your phone. Be prepared for this one. And um, being prepared uh, means that you care. Um, and, and so, you know, reach out to that person, um, encourage them to get professional help. There are Christian counselors and even great secular counselors um, that can help um, people and walk them through these times. And um, I think one thing that's particularly encouraging for those people are examples of others um, who uh, have been through the same thing. So All right, we, um, we're going to need to reconnect with Dr. Matthew Sleeth. Um, we're going to take a very brief break, and uh, during that, just make sure you put this number in your phone, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. We'll be right back. continuing our conversation with Dr. Matthew Sleeth during this Suicide Prevention Week, Suicide Awareness Month. Um, Matthew's new book, Hope Always. I got copies to give away. I see that in my notes. And so if you are a person who recognizes that you or someone else in your life, someone in your congregation, someone in your circle of friends, someone in your family um, is dealing with depression to the point of despair, um, this is the book for you. 
And so we'd love to hear from you today. Just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Again, you can text the word book to enter the drawing for the copies we have of Hope Always. The number is 877-933-2484. Matthew, let's talk about um, these forces that tempt us into darkness to choose death and how we can combat those lies with you know the the love and life truth of God, about God like th- there's these forces what are they um that sort of draw us toward the darkness and towards death and and then what tools do we have to combat those sure well i think i'm going to just quote jesus here he uh in in john 10:10 10, 10, he said the thief comes but to steal and to kill and destroy i come that they might have life and that might have it more abundantly. Um, There is a battle between good and evil, between Satan and God, Um, and it it, it starts right on the first page of the the Bible practically. Adam and Eve are in paradise. They're told not to do one thing, and if they do it, we'll kill them, and they do it, and and there's somebody pushing them, uh, egging them on, and that's Satan. And so I think, um, you know, this is where, uh, you know, kind of modern religion doesn't like to mention Satan or that we have an enemy, but we do. And, and, um, and this is where we really see it play out in, in suicide. Um, Satan doesn't want us alive, and Christ does. He wants to give us life. Um, that, that, and that does not mean that Christians are immune to this, as, as you pointed out earlier. Um, Christians think about suicide at the same rate that non-Christians do. They just act on it less. So I think we have to realize that we're in the midst of a battle, um, but that uh, we're not an accident. We did, didn't just get here by mistake, that that God uh, meant you to be here, and that has, uh, God has a purpose for you. Um, and that purpose most likely revolves on helping others. Um, when we we get outside of ourselves and we help others, um, we tend to for, begin to not pay so much attention um, to where we are. Now it's really difficult to to do if you're in the throes of depression. But um, in general, um, we maintain better mental health by helping others and by by serving others. And that's the example of our Lord, um, who even on the very last dinner that he had washed his disciples' feet. Yeah, that is so, that is so helpful. Um, serving others. I, we've re- I've recently had that conversation just in terms of friends in Waverly, Tennessee, who, you know, lost much of their uh, home and all of their possessions uh, in this massive flood that passed, uh, passed through mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And so now we have that, that same situation in Louisiana. We have it in New York and New Jersey. We have just places devastated. Um, We certainly have families across the uh, northwestern United States dealing with the aftermath of wildfires. In every single one of those circumstances and situations, sometimes your own, like your own situation is so paralyzing, you don't even know quite where to start or what to do. But it's amazing how empowering it is to go and help someone else get their house mucked out or their you know, the remnants of their life piled up and sorted, what can be saved and what must be uh, discarded. Like, it's very empowering to help even when you are a person in need of help. And that's how we live. Like, that's who we are as Christians. Every single one of us is in need of God's help, um, but we also turn and help others where we can. And it is very empowering. 
It, it is. It's what God built us to do, to live in community and, and to serve others. And uh, we live in a in a world really of narcissism and, and self-interest. And uh, that, that um, is, it's just not going well for society. Uh, I, I'll take you back to a time when I was an atheist and my wife was graduating from college and the, the little woman giving the graduation speech uh, said, you know, your life will have no meaning until you learn that you were put here on this earth to serve others. And we kind of laughed. We weren't Christians. We thought Mother Teresa was crazy giving that speech. But it turns out she 100, was 100% right. You know, um, it, Our life does not have meaning in, unless it's spent serving others. Uh, we, we, it's, it's like the first line out of uh, the purpose-driven life. It's not about you. Um, it, it's about others and about serving them and getting our minds off of ourselves. That's the way we need to die to ourselves that Jesus is talking about and, and be born again uh, to serve others. Mm. Dr. Sleeth, we have um, Sue on the text line right now. Um, she lives in Ohio. Her 36-year-old nephew-in-law committed suicide this past Thursday. Um, she says, my niece is beside herself. Uh, not only grief, but guilt. They are not Christians. My heart is obviously breaking for them. Um, I have communicated back with Sue that, you know, we're desperately sorry for her family. She's asking, will this book help? Um, I think we're talking about the other. Absolutely. The others. Yeah, go ahead. Talk, talk, talk yeah. to Sue. Uh, no, um, Sue, first of all, my, my heart goes out to you. One of the reasons I wrote this book is I know how painful it is to lose friends and, and family. And um, and one of the things that's made it better for me is helping others to make sure that other people don't have to go through this pain. And um, this isn't something you're going to instantly get over. But I think part of the process for you might be helping others to avoid this pain by being a force for life in this culture of suicide. Most of us have never had a conversation with somebody about not committing suicide, that sort of thing. And so I think we Christians have to get involved in this struggle and this fight. And if we don't, I'm afraid suicide will eventually be normalized by society. So Sue, get, it, get in there, start fighting this um, good fight. You won't win it every time. Um, but um, there's a special blessing in the Bible in uh, Proverbs 24:11 through 12, um, which which says that God is watching um, whether we're helping or not those people that are stumbling to their own deaths. And so, uh, Sue, uh, my heart goes out to you. Um, I pray that the Lord will touch your heart and heal you, but that He will also use you as an instrument of life and healing in other people's. That's what will give you hope and sanity. You're hearing uh, Dr. Matthew Sleeth. I'd encourage you to visit with him online, MatthewSleethMD.com. Also, for those of you interested in doing so, I love the ministry he's engaged in at BlessedEarth.org. I want to tee that up for those of you who've missed our conversation about trees. Um, Matthew, you know, before our time runs out today, I think the encouragement to engage is the real encouragement that we we want to be offering to people today, um, and the change of language doesn't help. Um, can you could you just address that? Like, there's just so many people who just don't want to talk about people killing themselves, uh, committing suicide. They want to change that language and sort of change our perception of it in the culture. Um, wh- why is changing the language something that doesn't help? 
because um, it, it, it's, it's Orwellian. <laughs> I don't know another way to put it. Well, the Bible says that people want to call light dark and dark light. Um, committing suicide is, um, is a tragedy, and, I, and to name it anything else um, is, is to call uh, darkness light. And, and so I think that we need to keep the language that we have, um, but that the church definitely has to engage on this. I um, preached at a church in Louisville, Kentucky, with 30,000 members uh, a few weeks ago. There's only probably one that size there. Um, and I asked uh, how many people had lost somebody to suicide. Almost half the hands went up. When 15 minutes later I asked how many have ever heard a sermon or anything about this from the church, zero hands went up. We have to educate ourselves on this so we can enter into these conversations. Christ told us to be wise as serpents. And um, so my encouragement to your listeners is to arm themselves with the tools uh, to go out there and save some lives. And by the way, I'm getting those letters from people now who have saved lives or had Mm. their life saved by somebody reaching out. And it's so heartening to get those. All right. If you want to be equipped to do what we're talking about today, uh, the book is Hope Always. Dr. Matthew Sleeth is the author. You can find it at MatthewSleethMD.com. We're also giving away some copies today. To enter that drawing, you just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Hope Always. Matthew, thank you uh, for joining us. Carmen, again, just wonderful to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, for those of you who need it, 1-800-273-8255. We'll be right back. Let's, uh, let's spend a minute praying for Sue and for her niece and for others who are facing um, real challenges and the temptation to rob God of the gift of of life. So, Father, we come before you in the name and by the power and the spirit of Jesus, and we ask that you would shine light into dark places, that you would show yourself present and active in the lives of those who right now doubt their worth or the worthiness of their life or that life is worth continuing living. That we ask for an infusion of hope this day, that your Holy Spirit would palpably touch people in places and spaces and circumstances where they feel totally isolated, discarded, marginalized, and lost. Father, you are a good, good Father. Reach in right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.